0: Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. 300,000 men. By the number of combatants, world history's largest ever naval battle was about to erupt. Carthage was the don of the ancient Western Mediterranean, the maritime power of the age. When you think of naval supremacy, you might think of the Royal Navy of the 18th and 19th centuries, or the US Navy today. Carthage was their equal in the Mediterranean of the 3rd century BC, with centuries of military and commercial naval experience behind her. Her empire matched her navy, stretching from Spain to Sicily and right across North Africa in between and as her navy was unmatched in both size and skill, Carthage viewed the Mediterranean Sea as hers. Rome was the upstart, the rising name, the young pup. It had recently completed its conquest of the Italian peninsula south of the River Po, with such peoples as the Etruscans, Sabines and Greater Greek Colonies coming under their sway. If Rome had stayed there and looked north for its expansion instead of south, the two may not have come to blows. But look south she did, to Sicily. The spark was a dispute between two Sicilian city-states, Syracuse and Messina. Of course, Carthage and Rome supported different teams, and as the tension grew, each side geared up for war. Carthage, the old master, felt confident that she would put these jumped-up little Roman boys in their place. Rome, though, so confident in her destiny, would prove to be an adversary more innovative and resilient than any other Carthage had faced. So welcome to 256 BC, and this, the historic naval showdown between the grizzled veteran and the cocky young buck. Welcome to the Battle of Cape Ecnomus. The First Punic War, as it became known, broke out eight years earlier. The Romans, supreme on land, pushed the Carthaginians back to their walled coastal cities in Sicily. But Carthage, supreme at sea, kept those citadels supplied and raided up and down the Italian coastline at will. The contemporary Greek historian Polybius, our main ancient source for the battle, sums up the Roman decision-making. When the Romans saw that the balance of advantage continually oscillated from one side to another, and that while the Italian coasts were repeatedly raided and devastated, those of Africa suffered no damage, they were filled with the desire to take to the sea and meet the Carthaginians there. I'm anxious that my readers should not remain ignorant of an important initiative of this kind. That is, how and when and for what reasons the Romans first ventured upon the sea. In short, Rome was winning the land war in Sicily, but she still couldn't get at the Carthaginian power base in Africa. While Carthage was able to strike more or less anywhere at any time, thanks to her powerful navy. It was this, more than anything else, which set the Roman determination on challenging Carthaginian naval dominance, and for the first time in their history, the Romans began to build a navy. Once the Carthaginians had recovered from crippling laughter, they set out to teach the upstarts a lesson in naval warfare, and the first small skirmish at Lepara fit the bill nicely. All 17 of the Romans' first ships were captured, along with one of that year's consuls. The Romans simply did not have the naval pedigree, the experience in shipbuilding or naval tactics that Carthage did. The Carthaginians also had hundreds of A Quinquireme was much larger than the warship which had previously held sway in the ancient Mediterranean, the Trireme. Triremes had three banks of oars and possibly 180 rowers, while the Quinquiremes had five banks and 300 rowers. The Greeks had first developed them, but the Carthaginians took them to a new level of perfection. They were large enough to be ideal fighting platforms, heavy enough to deal devastating blows with the huge bronze ram at the prow, strong enough to withstand enemy rams in turn, and with a well-trained crew, nimble as a ballerina. In fact, in all the first small-scale engagements, the Carthaginians danced around the clumsy, inexperienced Roman ships. But then two things happened. First, a Carthaginian quinquereme ran aground and was captured by the Romans, who promptly copied it plank for plank, including the clever numbering system the Carthaginians used for different parts, so it could all be put together quickly. The Romans wasted no time in building hundreds of them and training crews on land while they waited. The second development was the corvus, meaning crow. The Romans had been searching for a way to negate the Carthaginian expertise at sea, and the corvus was just the thing that might tip the scales. It was a long, wide gangplank built onto the front of each newly copied quinquereme. It could swivel at its base so it could swing in any direction, and while it was held upright when sailing, it could be released quickly to come crashing down on an enemy deck in battle. And the best thing was why it was called the crow. It had a huge metal spike on the underside which resembled a crow's beak. When the corvus was released, the spike would pierce an enemy ship's deck, holding it in place while fully armed legionaries swarmed across in a massive boarding action. The Carthaginians had no idea what was about to hit them. Their first experience of the new Roman Corvus was at the Battle of Maile, four years before Echnomus. Expecting another walkover victory, the Carthaginians attacked in haste and without order wondering about the strange additions to the Roman prowls, but certainly not worried about them. But they were horrified when the corvi were released and smashed onto their decks, allowing legionaries to flood across to slaughter marines, sailors and crew. In just one afternoon, the Romans captured 30 Carthaginian ships and sank 13 more. The rest scattered in shock. The Romans had effectively turned naval battles into land battles and were using their superior army to devastating effect at sea. Carthaginian naval expertise had been made obsolete overnight by Roman ingenuity. The tide, excuse the pun, had turned. Fast forward to 256 BC, the Romans massed an army in Sicily in preparation for the invasion of Africa, and assembled a massive fleet of 330 ships to take them there in convoy. For the Carthaginians, well aware of Roman plans, this was a nightmare. It was one thing fighting the Roman army in Sicily to fight it in the African homeland was unthinkable. So, they called together every available vessel, gathering 350 ships at the Sicilian rendezvous of their major citadel, Lilibaeum. The Romans sailed their invasion fleet east along the southern coast of Sicily, aiming to cross to Africa at the narrowest possible point. The Carthaginians sailed west to intercept them. Polybius wrote, The one side was determined to cross, the other to prevent their crossing. And their enthusiastic rivalry gave promise of a desperate struggle. The desperate struggle began when the two fleets met at Cape Echnomus. The Carthaginians remained confident in their naval prowess, their centuries-old shipbuilding and tactical superiority. Their crews were better trained and natural seamen, their ships more agile. But the Romans too were confident, knowing full well that the Corvi were capable of tipping the scales in their favour. They set themselves in a wedge-shaped vanguard behind which two lines of squadrons lay with the horse transports. The Carthaginians faced them with a single line, with the left flank angled forward towards the Romans. 300,000 men were about to go to war with each other on the open sea, with the coast of Sicily just to the north. No other naval battle before or since has been larger. At first, the two great beasts eyed each other, sizing each other up, rallying the spirits of their men. Then the Romans gave the signal to attack, and the vanguard wedge lurched forward, gathering speed, surging through the sunlit sea. The Carthaginians smiled. This was exactly what they wanted. They had deliberately left their centre weakened to lure the Romans into such an attack, and now commanded their centre to pretend to flee, drawing the Roman vanguard on. Such was the Roman desperation to engage that the wedge grew quickly away from their two other squadrons lying behind with the transports, which the Carthaginian flanks. Now happily fell upon in panic, the Romans cut the tow-lines on the horse transports, letting them drift free while the Carthaginians swept into the stunned Roman rearguard. But the Romans quickly recovered, and when both sides were disrupted by the drifting transports, the battle became a confused melee of individual ships, prows carved waves. Rams smashed hulls, Corvi cracked decks, and legionaries swept them clean of enemy marines. One line of the Roman rearguard felt outmatched and retreated to the shallows of the Sicilian coastline, pursued by a squadron of Carthaginian ships. The other line was still fighting out in the open sea. And then, of course, there was the Roman vanguard wedge. As soon as the vanguard had been drawn away from the rest of its fleet, the Carthaginian centre now wheeled around to fall upon them. What resulted was a brutal cacophony of bronze rams, steel blades and wooden hulls, screaming men and the churning sea. Polybius writes, The contest was a severe one. The Carthaginians had a great superiority in the rapidity with which they manoeuvred their ships. They darted out from their line and rowed round the enemy. They approached them with ease and retired with dispatch. But the Romans, no less than the Carthaginians, had their reasons for entertaining hopes of victory. For when the vessels got locked together, the contest became one of sheer strength. Their engines, the crows, grappled all that once came to close quarters. In short, the Carthaginians were using their naval superiority to the max, while the Romans tried to get close enough to use the corvi, the crows, to allow their legionaries to board ships en masse, slaughtering every Carthaginian in sight. It was a struggle for the ages. The battle had essentially descended into three manic duels. The first in the shallows of the coastline, the second in the open sea, and the third between the two fleet's centres. And all the while, the horse transports are just drifting around. It was chaotic, bloody and furious. The moment of reckoning had come the point at which the battle would turn in one's favour or the other. It was a truly fine-run thing. The two rearguard Roman squadrons were being mauled by the Carthaginians, but the fight between the two fleet centres was swinging in favour of the Romans. It could have gone either way, but it was in the centre that the battle was decided. The Carthaginians had found that they had left their centre just a little too weakened in order to entice the Roman vanguard to attack it, and it was now, finally, overwhelmed. It broke and fled. The Romans quickly called off the pursuit and turned back to the other two jewels raging behind them, and the vanguard now split in two to take each on simultaneously. The Carthaginians now risked being surrounded at both jewels, and those who were in the open sea could see the danger coming, let out their sails and made a run for it. But those who had been fighting the Romans in the coastline shallows now found themselves trapped between the shore and the fast-approaching and vengeful Roman vanguard. Seeing the futility of their predicament, they surrendered wholesale and here alone the Romans captured 50 ships. Had the fight in the centre gone the other way, with the Romans fleeing instead, it would have been the Carthaginians hunting down and surrounding the two jewels. It would have seen a totally different outcome to the battle. But as it was, the day was a disaster for Carthage. She had lost 94 ships to Rome's 24, and 40,000 men to Rome's 10,000. But more importantly, the sea was now open for the Roman invasion of Africa. In brief, the invasion initially went well, but the Carthaginian army did eventually defeat the Romans but their navy was trounced again while trying to intercept the Roman evacuation, losing another 114 ships at the Battle of Cape Hermaeum. The irony was that the weather did what the Carthaginians couldn't. En route home, the huge Roman fleet was devastated in a storm, possibly because the corvi made the ships less seaworthy in rough seas. 384 Roman ships were sent to the bottom of the ocean, along with 100,000 men. The First Punic War raged on until 241 BC, when finally, after yet another naval defeat, Carthage sued for peace. The new Roman naval dominance had completely transformed the balance of power in the Mediterranean Sea. And it was why the famous Hannibal marched his army from Spain to Italy 23 years later in the Second Punic War. And ultimately, it was why the Romans were able to systematically and decisively defeat Carthage in the Third Punic War. At the three-year siege of Carthage ending in 146 BC, a hundred years after Echnomus, The Romans utterly destroyed the city, raising it completely and symbolically salting the fields so that nothing could grow there again. Its entire population was either killed or sold into slavery. Echnomus marked the beginning of Roman supremacy in the Mediterranean, what they would quickly call Mare Nostrum or Our Sea. That dominance would see the Romans create an empire which touched the Mediterranean coastline from North Africa and Spain to Egypt and the Levant. But one of the ultimate ironies of history was that a Roman city was eventually rebuilt on the site of Carthage and the old Carthaginian provinces became the richest of the entire later Roman Empire. In fact, So crucial did these former Carthaginian lands become that it was the Vandal seizure of them 600 years later that would sound the death knell of Rome. Join us next time for what was the last major battle of road warships and the largest naval battle since antiquity. The ever-expanding Ottoman Empire was spreading across the Mediterranean threatening the Christian kingdoms and the trade on which they relied. When they captured the Venetian island of Cyprus and broke their promise to let the garrison go free, and instead imprisoned them, flaying the commander alive, the Pope called for a holy league to face them at sea once and for all. Much of Mediterranean Christendom responded, and five hundred ships and a hundred thousand men went to war to decide the future of Europe at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.